guys just looked so beautiful. Everybody, uh, last Friday, or Friday before, uh, I went to, uh, I can't really probably say the name right before a sermon, but it's Kick A Entrepreneurs of Clovis. <laughs> you can just figure out what the A, the A is, you know. Um, but anyway, and because Christy Cross was speaking, and it was at the firehouse, and so it's like story time from entrepreneurs, and uh, I won the prizes, the drawing. I was shocked. I got a T-shirt, a hat, five free passes to the firehouse, and um, of course picked up a sticker. But anyway, uh, we were talking. She was talking about photography, and you know, she'd done most of us in the room. And she mentioned how much fun it was doing hours because it was, you know, not the normal, you know, that people do. But anyway, uh, and then she uh, emailed me the previews and said that because our session didn't take as long as we thought because we had blocked off three hours, so I purchased three hours uh, versus an hour, she's given us 35 more photos. Yay! <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what it said. So, anyway, and of course, you guys will all get copies. Oh, boy. I'll get y'all those. All right. Anyway, um, we already had the funny with my TikTok, Instagram, Reels. Anyone can go to my Instagram handle and see that. No joke this morning. We're going to dive right in. Now, uh, like I said last week, we're not going to go through Saul and David. More than likely... I will be doing a series on that time. Uh, David is one of my favorite people in the Old Testament. Uh, I think what fascinates me about him is how tapped into the heart of God he was. You know, where he could literally, by faith, pull what we experience today into his present. Where his faith trumped the law. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. You know, the fact that he had the tabernacle of David, he had the ark in there, it was open access. The only sacrifices that were done in the tabernacle of David were praise and thanksgiving. He instituted a 24-7 worship. And y'all know that prophets also will tend to be worshipers, right? I mean, worshipers were considered prophets. So they would either uh, prophesy through song or they would teach through song, which is why you see Paul saying, in Colossians, and I believe Ephesians, but it might just be Colossians, that we are to instruct through song. So he instituted that. He lived in a time where he separated the age of grace over into the tabernacle of David, where the sacrifices in Moses' tabernacle continued on 10 miles down in Gibeon, which was also a picture of the church where when the ecclesia was birthed, for a time, you had the body of Christ running alongside the temple of Herod. You know, so all of that is prophetic. So he's fascinating. He's one of my favorite studies. But he's very complex. There's a lot to, you know, get through with him. So what I felt the Holy Spirit wanted to do was actually focus on the kings from Solomon on. And uh, so we're going to dive into that context right now. We're going to start with 2 Samuel, and then we'll spend the most of our time in Kings from this point forward. But in 2 Samuel 12, 24-25, in the English Standard Version, it says, 
Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now pay attention to these next words. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So reading between the lines, basically Bathsheba's first child died, right? Because she had gotten impregnated outside of marriage with David. Also, she was married at the time. David has her, her husband killed in battle, which was quite sad because he was one of his original loyal supporters and one of his mighty men that would have done anything for David. In fact, when he called him out of battle, when he should have been battle, he called him home and he was hoping he would sleep with Bathsheba so that the baby that she was carrying would be mistaken as being his. But he was so loyal to him, there was no way he could do it. And he slept on the stoop of the door to the, the house of David because he couldn't, couldn't do it. And now, now you have where David fasted for the life of that child. The child died. Once the child died, he washed himself. He ended his fast. He had some food. He then went in and he comforted her. That child he decided to name Solomon. But what's fascinating is in the scriptures it says the Lord loved him. And then it appears he sent Nathan to David specifically to give Solomon a nickname, Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord. Now that's, that's fascinating. Because it's a redemption that God is trying to institute in Solomon's life right from the start. Because if you think about it, Solomon is starting off from a negative. You know what I mean? And so right from the start, God is saying, I love him. He's Jedediah. He's beloved to me. And then later we see that the Lord actually picks him to take possession of the throne and build his house. So this is just to me a fabulous um, redemptive story around his birth. So, just brief summary. Uriah, one of David's mighty men, uh, uh, was well known to David. He might have even begun lusting after David from the days, or lusting after Bathsheba from the days when they dwelt in, ca- uh, in caves. Remember that? Uriah was one of the early ones, and so there's no telling how long it had been playing out in David's mind to take her. We don't know that for sure, but that's kind of how things work. David <laughs> should have been in battle because it was a time when kings go to war, but instead he stayed home and he sent his general Joab to run things. One night he couldn't sleep and he was on his rooftop uh, walking around bored. He saw a beautiful woman bathing ceremonially. Uh, he called for her and had to have known that she was the wife of his faithful from the beginning mighty man. Uh, but he had sex with her anyway. Um, some debate that she went willingly. I do too. It's kind of like this is the king of Israel. Are you going to say no? What happens if you say no? I wish she would have, but she didn't. I don't know. I don't know what would have happened. But anyway, she gets pregnant. David tries to get Uriah to sleep with his wife after calling him home, getting him drunk, but he's so faithful he refused to go home. He slept in the doorway at the palace. David then had his general pull back in battle so that Uriah died. A year later, so as an entire year, 
Nathan comes to David and he confronts him. David repents. He begins to intercede for the child. The child dies. David comforts. She conceives again and Solomon is born. So in all of this context, the Bible says the Lord loved him and his name was Jedidiah. So I know that you know the Lord loves everybody equally, but I think that he was trying to communicate that message in a, a very prominent way to Solomon. Now, in 2 Chronicles 22, 9-10, we have some more uh, word for Solomon that God was uh, trying to establish him in. It says in verse 9, Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give him peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now this is very uh, close to the prophecy from Nathan given in, uh, I think, 1 Kings chapter 7, which we're going to dive into in a few weeks in depth. But again, we have this prophecy over Solomon. I'm sure David spoke this to Solomon many, many, many times as he was growing up. He would be a man of rest. He'd be a man of peace. There would be quietness in his days. Uh, he would build God a house. Now we know that the house for God was actually originally David's idea. It wasn't God's idea. Remember when David said, you know, I'm going to build a house, a prophet. Nathan's like, that's a good idea. Do whatever's in your heart. Then when Nathan went back home, then the Lord showed up and was like, no, I don't. He's, he can't build a house. He's a man of war. He has shed blood. I think that's twofold. He fought battles, which was his call, but also he shed Uriah's blood, innocent blood. So you can't build the house of God from a place of war. That's why you have to war from rest in the New Testament. You have to war from peace in the New Testament. So what that means is that when okay how do you build a house you build a house through equipping the saints of the work of ministry and providing teaching because teaching is what lays the foundation and builds the walls and so that's why it says that the word of god is received by those in peace and it should be taught from those that are in peace okay so, peace is the foundation, and then we also have as a scripture to back up warring from a place of peace, is the God of peace shall soon crush Satan under your feet. So when you see people get riled, and they're just in this turmoil, and ah, you know, sometimes that's necessary. But there should be that overarching, arcing, is it overarching? Overarching? Overarching sounds funny, but is it? Does anybody know? <laughs> Sorry, I got distracted. My brain went tink, tink, tink. But anyway, that overall feeling of being a person of peace. Okay? So Solomon was um, the one tasked with building uh, the house of God. That was David's idea. God liked the idea. He assigned it to him. Now, Solomon fulfilled those things. He was a man of peace. Israel did not have war during his reign. But here's the two parts I'm not sure he got that we need to get. 
Because the reason we're examining the lives of these men is because we can take lessons from them on how to build correctly. Overarching. Thank you so much, Darina, for that. I appreciate it. <laughs> Overarching is a verdict. But we got to learn how they ruled and the mistakes and the things they did that were well so that we can do the same things. Okay? So here's where I think there were some cracks in Solomon's foundation. Number one, I don't think he ever realized his identity as God's son and father as his father. I also think the circumstances surrounding his birth really impacted him, which is why I think that God bent over backwards to let Solomon know how beloved he was to him, and I don't think he quite got that either. Okay? So again, that goes back to the principle of every prophetic word you get, the very first thing you look for is your identity. I feel Solomon got task-focused apart from identity-focused. Because if he would have known his identity, I don't think he would have had 900 wives. <laughs> I don't think he would have gotten into idolatry. You know what I mean? I don't think he would have done a lot of the things he did. And the things that he did was very damaging because the realm of peace in Israel only lasted in his lifetime. Haven't y'all been reading like Chronicles and stuff? Or the Kings? If you have anything to throw in there, please do. Because I feel that he, and I know I'm saying think and feel a lot because I'm reading in between the lines, but just understanding how people fall, it's always centered around identity. Warfare is always around identity. And so that's why when you get these words, usually the first thing he does is imparts identity to you. My beloved daughter, you're my emerald, you're my gardener, whatever it is, you're the digger. I mean, whatever it is, he's always imparting that because your due is sourced from your being. If you try to do your due apart from being, you'll probably fall. That's why you have people that they get in the pulpit, great revivalists, they become addicted to the anointing. They come, become addicted to their task because it's very easy to do that. And yet they then die of overdose to sleeping pills because they can't sleep because they're overworking or they fall into false doctrine or they're involved in homosexual activity or uh, prostitutes and massage parlors or whatever you want to say whatever it is there is a guarantee if you go back to the beginning of their lives that identity was not set in stone they did not cultivate Throughout the course of their ministry career, they did not cultivate the father-son, father-daughter aspect. They were focused on the task. They were addicted to the anointing. And so when they were outside of it, life became bland. God's energy is so powerful and fabulous that if you're not careful, you think you're intimate with Him in the task. Here's a key. When you get into where you're setting still, 
if you're not as energized and focused, you probably are working more from your do than your be. Does that make sense? You're apart times with him, whether you're on the tractor mowing five feet, you know, weeds, five foot weeds, or if you're sitting outside enjoying nature, whatever it is, I don't care. What I'm talking about is apart from ministry. So when you're out there and you're having this communion with him, that is the most important and the source for everything you do in the name of Jesus. None of it should be separate. Sacred and secular should never be separate. Okay? If you look at worship and work, they come from the same Hebrew word. So they're both the same. But what I'm referring to is thinking that you know God just because you stand behind a pulpit or just because you operate in a prophetic gift or just because you heal people. That means nothing when it comes to who you are in Christ. That's simply a function you operate in. Does that make sense? Richard, do you have anything coming to mind on your studies or Solomon or anything at all? Uh, well, what you're saying, but it's true. Solomon could have been very, very different. Yeah. And I think a lot of it was, I don't know. I, I see a lot of pride in Solomon. Yes. Uh, Self-absorption. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know you call it what you want, but... I think he was definitely depressed. Um, he was a C personality. And so he would ponder a lot about the meaning of life and different things. He was exposed to different gods that began to infiltrate his understanding. If And again, if he would have known and allowed the revelation, you are beloved, you are Jedediah, if he would have allowed that to infiltrate his soul to such a degree that nothing else could have penetrated it, uh, we would have had a totally different story. We would have had a totally different story. Another thing, I think I think the glory of man got to him too, really. Probably. I think, I think he had so much glory, and he did, because it said there was no nobody greater in the land. Mm -hmm. People heard it from far, far away just to come and see him, yeah. meet him, get to know him. He'd answer questions they had pondered, you know. I, I really think the glory of man, he really, he really knew what that really was. I think he absorbed in that glory of man. What's interesting, you know, you mentioned the glory aspect. In Ecclesiastes, which by the way is basically him being in a depressed state, saying everything sucks. You know, that's, that's what he's saying. There are some truths in there, but don't take, you know, life is vain from him. You know, one of the mistakes we make is reading the Old Testament as if every thought recorded was God's thought. It wasn't. But there are there's inspiration in the Holy Spirit and the breathing upon man and them writing. But if you read Ecclesiastes, the dude needed some antidepressant. What's what's interesting is he said even wealth is vain. It's vanity. Yeah, he's probably insane from all their nagging and stuff. But the thing is, is that the reason um, he got to that point of the wealth is if we remember the first place wealth is used in the Bible is referring to Jacob taking Laban's wealth. When you look at the original Hebrew word, it's kabod, which is the Hebrew word for glory. Wealth is a part of the glory. Glory is part of wealth. 
he operated in a tremendous amount of glory. In fact, he is probably the closest to heaven on earth of any king. Even David couldn't get there because David was warring all the enemies, leading the way, creating the environment for Solomon to have peace, right? So the glory that he was exposed to and that he operated in definitely played a role. So, um, here's another thing. David had many wives and concubines as well. They had children, and we know children can be mean. In their eyes and the wives, Solomon is the son of probably a whore to them. Okay? An illegitimate wife. Uh, someone that murdered her husband. Okay? So I'm sure you can picture 900 wives uh, and 600 concubines? No, Was 300 that it? Concubine. 300 concubines, 600 wives, right? So you can imagine the harem. Now, I'm sure not all of them lived in one place, but can you imagine the bullying and the gossip and all of the stuff Solomon was raised around? Okay? So you've got this situation where Solomon's the son of the woman whose husband David killed. The ridicule, the shame, and the ostracizing had to be there when Solomon grew up. Not to mention that Solomon was destined to be the future king by God's proclamation and out of birth order. What's interesting too is when people have the favor of God on them, it provokes jealousy. I'm not sure if everyone knew he was next in line. We do know that Solomon probably was told that by David. I don't know if the other kids knew it, but what we do know is he probably carried a favor. He probably spent more time with David because David was grooming him. And we know that because he's, uh, in the Proverbs, he talks over and over about the, the listening to the commands from his dad, right? And the teachings from his mom. So he was being groomed from a young age to be king, even though, again, he was our birth order. There were four ahead of him. And we'll get to that in a second. So he's being groomed for king, and he even wanted to know why he was being targeted for more discipline when all the other kids could get away with more. Okay? So that's, that's what the dynamic was, the family dynamic. Solomon was not the oldest son. God picked the unfaithful woman in their eyes to be king. I'm sure there was jealousy and possibly even some self-righteous anger. All of this could have led to Solomon never feeling legitimate or like a son. And that might have opened the door to his demise. So that's why it's so important. When your identity is being hit, you just dig in your heels. You study it. You learn it. You ask God for revelation. You just really war with that word. That way um, you don't have any cracks in your foundation. I thought we'd be in Kings today, but so far we've been in Chronicles and Samuel. So in 1 Chronicles 22, 11 through 13, now I'm in the New King James Version. It says, Now my son, may the Lord be with you. May you prosper and build the house of the Lord your God as he has said to you. Only may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding and give you, excuse me, give you charge concerning Israel that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper. And if you take care to fulfill the statutes and the judgments with which the Lord charged Moses concerning Israel, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be dismayed. 
Now this is another example of a partial fulfillment or obedience to the prophetic word. Notice he said, May the Lord give you wisdom and understanding and give you charge concerning Israel. David's the one that actually prepared Solomon's heart to ask for wisdom to uh, lead God's people. See that? He's telling them, may he give you wisdom and understanding. So then we see in 1 Kings 3, 9-14, through 14, it says, Solomon asking God, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been seen before, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare to you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Did you notice anything missing from Solomon's prayer? Help me keep your statutes and your commandments. So if we look back at what David said, May the Lord give you understanding and give you charge. May you keep the law, right? So when we get down here where Solomon's asking God, he only asked for wisdom and understanding. He did not ask for the ability to keep the law. And did you notice that at the end, God tacked that on there? That's very interesting. It also shows that God indeed gave Solomon the wisdom he needed, but the choice to keep his commands was in Solomon's hands. In 1 Chronicles 28.7 in the English Standard, it says, I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today. So by this scripture, we know he did not continue strong in keeping his commandments because the kingdom was divided after his death. And we're going to get to that more later. But I wanted to just lay the foundation and show some of the cracks that were in it. Okay? That way we have understanding and we know how we can rule ourselves as well. Okay, so Solomon, he's anointed as king, but David, like usual, procrastinated. That was one of the things that irritated me to no end. And if he, you know, if I have to have a conversation with him later for throwing shade on him, that's okay. But he didn't deal with stuff. And because of that, and, and I want to be very careful because he's God's friend, um, but because of some of his decisions, it opened the door to violence in his house. And it caused problems. And so we see this right here playing out, okay? So this is very interesting. We might take some lessons from David on deal with stuff quickly. Unless the Holy Spirit tells you to wait, nip things in the bud. So at this point, when Solomon was anointed as king, David was old. He was advanced in years. Um, they would cover him with a lots, of, you know, lots of clothes and blankets. They didn't have heated blankets back in the day. Well, actually, they bought him a heated blanket. Um, it was a female. <laughs> 
which I'll get to in a second. Um, but he's approaching the end of his life. Uh, he's you know now old. He's frail. So they hired a beautiful young woman to hold the king to keep him warm. So that was his electric blanket. It's <laughs> funny. Now he didn't sleep with her. Uh, that, that her job was to to keep him warm. So for David's son, and does anybody know how to pronounce his name well so I don't botch it? Adonijah? Is that how you say it? Adonijah? I, Adonijah, I bet. Because Adonai? Yeah. Adonijah. So this was a perfect time to steal the throne from Solomon. So we're going to read 1 Kings 1, 5 through 8 out of the English Standard. Now, Adonijah, the son of Hag, Haggith exalted himself, important phrase, saying, I will be king. Sound familiar to somebody we know? And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking him, Why have you done this and so? You know what that means? He was spoiled rotten. He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He confirmed, conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaniah, the son of Jehodiah, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shammai, and Rai, and I don't know how to pronounce his name, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah, I think, didn't it? Adonijah? I have no idea. People get it. You can just read and make up your own name. So he exalted himself in the Lord's eyes, something that the Lord despises. What's interesting, he's actually in succession. The throne was supposed to go to him. Amnon, the firstborn, was dead after Absalom killed him for raping his sister because David didn't deal with it. Uh, Absalom was dead for trying to take the throne from David because David did nothing. So Absalom got bitter and offended and tried to take it away. Uh, it appears, again, he was spoiled. He was handsome. Joab and Abiathar, however you say his name, agreed that he should be the next king. But here you have discerning in Zadok, Nathan, and David's mighty men, along with others. Because here's what's important. They understood that God appoints and removes kings and he had already designated Solomon as the next king. Here's one of those sticky situations where human reasoning is, yes, Adonijah should have been king. That made sense. There was a succession to the throne. And yet those that knew God knew he wasn't supposed to be. You see what I mean? That's why the Bible says you cannot rely on human reasoning. There are things that seem wise in our own eyes that are actually against the Lord's will and they're trash. You should just throw them out. Okay. In verses 9 through 10, Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fatted calf by the serpent stone, interesting, which is beside Enrogel, and he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, which I'm sure was like the city of Clovis, and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan or Benaiah or the mighty men or Solomon his brother. Now what does that tell us? He knew the prophetic word. Okay? 
So that's very interesting. When people are in selfish ambition, they always remove those that challenge their ambition. Always. They won't listen to them. All of a sudden, you're no longer friends with them because they don't want to talk to you. Selfishly ambitious, ambitious people always remove voices that challenge that ambition. And that's exactly what he did. So this was more than a throne. What was going to happen next is Adonijah was going to kill Solomon and probably Nathan and David's mighty men. We were about to see a genocide of anybody that supported Solomon. Now, I know this is a long passage, but I want to get into this and extract a few pieces, and then we're almost done. Okay, so in 1 Kings 1, we're going to read verses 11 through 28 in the English Standard uh, Version. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, is the, son, the son of Haggith, has become king? And David, our Lord, does not know it? Now therefore come, let me give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then, while you are still speaking with the king, I will come in after you and confirm your words. <laughs> okay, guys, this is kind of interesting. A little bit manipulative, maybe? <laughs> anyway, I thought that was funny. Uh, so Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag, the Shunammite, was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my, thr on my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord the king, did not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fatted, fattened uh, cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon your servant he has not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Let's pause. Why had David not done it already? That's what is so aggravating. He's old. He has a human for an electric blanket because he can't stay warm. Why at this point did you not anoint Solomon? Why didn't he set maybe a joint rule when he was younger where Solomon was sitting on the throne with him? He waited until the last minute. And by waiting until the last minute, discord was created because you got Adonijah, who is ambitious. We're not going to, you know, obviously overlook that but he was also probably impatient like let's settle this thing if Solomon's going to become king put him as king if not the kingdom is not being ruled you're at home in bed being warmed by a human someone has to run the country I'll do it so he had selfish ambition and he had impatience because David didn't step up, and I don't know why. Was he an S personality, maybe? I don't know. I don't know what was wrong. I'm not saying being S is wrong. They just don't like conflict. So I don't know if that was it. So here we have, you know, now this situation going on. Verse 21, Otherwise it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. 
while she was still speaking with the king, on cue, Nathan the prophet came in, and they told the king, here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before him with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord the king, have you said, Adonijah, Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. For he has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, <laughs> and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest, and behold, they're eating and drinking before him, and saying, Long live king Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, but Aniah the son of uh, whoever, and the servant, your servant Solomon has not been invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king, and have you not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then King David said, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. Okay, so we've got a coup going on. It's apparent everybody knew, so now it's got to be stopped. So David, he now has to fix things again, post-mess. 32. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of whoever. So they came before the king, and the king said, Take with you the servants of your lord, and have Solomon my son ride my own mule, and bring him down to Gion, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. Now he had to be on his mule so they knew it was a legitimate coronation. That was something that Adonijah didn't have access to, was his own um, mule. And uh, uh, and I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. So Benaniah answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord the king, even so may be with Solomon, and make his throne greater than the throne of David, blah, blah. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah, uh, and the Cherethites and Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gion. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. They blew the trumpet. All the people said, Long live King Solomon. All the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. Now let's pause there for a second. The sound of the Lord will always trump selfish ambition. Okay? The sound of the Lord. The unified voice. We are to think the same thing, say the same thing according to 1 Corinthians. That does not erase our individuality. But it's an interdependence and a unity in the spirit that's needed. When you have unity among the people of God, there is no sound that can trump it. So, Adonijah, all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. And when jo Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, Oh, uh, <laughs> what does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar the priest, uh, came, and Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a worthy man, and bring good news. Jonathan answered, No. For our Lord, King David, has made Solomon king, and the king has sent him with Sadok, Nathan, and Benaniah, and the Cherethites and Pelethites. I have no idea who those people are. And they had him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, have anointed him at Gion, and they have gone up from, up from there rejoicing, so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, 
May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours, and may his throne greater make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. What does that mean? David bowed to Solomon. He's now the king. Then all the guests of Adonijah, Adonijah, what did you say to call him? Aden? Adon. Trembled and rose, and each went his own way. So, uh, and Adon feared Solomon, so he rose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And it was told Solomon, Behold, Adon fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him from the altar, and he came and paid homage to King Solomon. Solomon said, Go to your house. <laughs> Go to your room. Go home. <laughs> okay. Scholars believe that Solomon was 20 during this. Can you imagine the pressure he felt? 20-year-old? I mean, we've got 20-year-olds that don't know basic biology. But who did he have right on his side? Had his mom. She definitely helped him. And Nathan. He had a good priest. Yep. And uh, had a good prophet. Yeah. He surrounded himself with people that loved God and wanted him to succeed. Yeah. Which was the downfall of his son. He fired all the advisors and uh, hired young people. <clears throat> so, I'm not sure if Adon's reasoning was that David was old and someone needed to do something and run the kingdom, but the fact is, he tried to place himself on the throne. So not long after that, David slept with his fathers. He was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned 7 years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father and his kingdom was firmly established. I'm sure he felt the pressure. You know, like that phrase of living in your dad's shadow or someone else's shadow. You know, it's like when you've got an epic hero like David who established the stability of the kingdom of Israel, fulfilling prophetic words that were given to Moses and Joshua all those years ago, and and he was able to fulfill a lot of them. I'm sure, I mean, personally, I, I would not have wanted to be king if I was Solomon, there's no way. Because not only do you have to establish your rule in light of David's, but you now have to continue and and face a daunting task of building a house worthy of the God of the universe. One thing, when I, when I read, and I have read it more than once, when I read when Solomon first began his government, mm -hmm. his management yeah. of the kingdom, David more or less said, Here's some issues. Mm -hmm. It's up to you what you want to do with them. Yeah. Discern what is right or wrong, but here's the issues. And he had to kill a lot of those yeah, issues. Yeah, those issues. Well, <laughs> in the terminology, the swamp wasn't very good then. No, the swamp wasn't. But the way Solomon did it was, well, Dad said, do what I think's right, so what should I do? Well, this person wasn't very good. Get rid of them. Yeah. Well, and he warned them, go home, behave. Oh, that one guy You'll just, live. Just, 
Then you got some profit. And don't leave the territory. And he, he did. We're going to get into all that. Yeah. I, um, there, there's uh, one of those like shows, uh, I think it was King David or something like that, you know, that they made, you know, to the period of that time and stuff. I'll never forget the scene. It was years ago. I think Kent was still living in the house. And it was David, and Solomon was right next to him. And he grabbed his face. David grabbed his face. And he told him, he said, if this person, this person, and this person does this, this, and this, kill him. You know, it was like he was telling him, don't, don't have mercy. In other words, don't, don't linger into the last Yes, as king, <laughs> do what you need to do. And it was such a powerful moment. And so he did. He had to get rid of a few people that would have undermined. You know? Yes, he did what he said. And by the way, there is uh, several prophecies. That passage that we just read about Aden and Solomon being crowned is a prophecy of Trump being president. Now, they had it back when they thought it looked like Biden wasn't, you know, that he you know, wouldn't win, that it's going to look like he was going to win, and then Trump would get in. Obviously, that didn't come to pass. We'll see about 2024. I still haven't learned, uh, heard from the Lord regarding President Trump. But I will, one thing I'd like to ask you guys to pray is, uh, and we'll get to our ties uh, in a second, but speaking of, you know, this type of stuff, ruling and governing, I'm sure it's a heavy burden, probably something that most of us won't ever carry, you know, especially over a nation. I haven't decided if I want to be president yet or not one day, but uh, if I, you know, am, I'm sure it's a heavy burden. And so when I'm studying, you know, for our podcast, We the Deplorables, to educate the ecclesia on the plans, the agenda, what's really going on, reading books to educate myself. Now I recognize code words. I recognize things that are, okay, that's what that means. That, that, you know, it's, it's code, code language. Everybody knows what it means. It can be heavy. You know, it's kind of like if you are like looking, you know, at a problem like my finances, you know, when we first look at the finances, how bad they were, it was heavy, but you had to get to work fixing it. It's kind of the same thing. It's like the Lord is peeling back layer after layer, decade after decade of a very well thought out and executed agenda. So... I uh, was asking the Lord about that um, because what I'm finding, I'm just being vulnerable here, what I'm finding is I'm longing for back in our day before all this crap came out. But it's been there the whole time. The only difference is the media and, the, you know, now things are more. So it's it's like, man, I Wish we were, you know, back in those days for all the... It's kind of like, you know, if you, you don't want to go to the doctor and find out you have cancer, it's kind of that thing. You wish you could, like, turn away and not look at it. So I decided this morning, I was, you know, asking the Lord, what should I do about that? Because I know my call is to continue to study this stuff and educate people. That's part of the, the um, strategy he's given me. He said, well, what'd you tell Kent whenever he had to practice music that was from people that didn't know Jesus? I said... Oh, I told him after he got done to spend time with the Lord. Ditto. That's what you need to do. When you read, 
get into some good worship, recalibrate, you know, focus. So my prayer request is that you guys pray for me to do that because you don't want to study this stuff and then lose joy. You don't want to study this stuff and hate people or get down, you know. So anyway, that was a strategy you gave me, but if you could pray for me because it's, it's pretty interesting. But I also am full of hope because I saw her start breathing again on January 6th in that vision. And, uh, you know, so I know America has a future. And what's crazy is President Trump is one of the most hopeful people. And he has probably seen more corruption than we've ever seen in the swamp. You know what I mean? So he's definitely, he's got it figured out. But uh, let's go ahead and pray for our tithes and offerings. Do y'all have anything else you want to? Yeah. Before you can build a house, if there's an old one that's no good, it has to be torn down. And if the foundation's no good, it has to be totally ripped up. You can't build upon a bad foundation. And I'm sure he knows that. He's a builder. Right. He goes in the city and rips down old stuff and builds it. He knows this. Mm -hmm. He's a smart man. Mm -hmm. So he's probably going, maybe I tried to build the wrong way. I don't know, because he was tearing out a lot of the yeah, old stuff. Yeah, but he knows that the foundation's no good. Well, the foundation of our founding documents is what kept us from being overthrown from the beginning. But I feel that it wasn't necessarily him. It was a church to not engage in the Seven Mountains. And so we've got some stuff, because he was tearing down. And when you've got, and building, and when you've got Chuck Pierce warning us at his election that if the church does not engage in society, everything President Trump did will be reversed. And that's exactly day one. The answer is never a government official. The answer is right here. You know what I mean? It's us. Every The revolution, the civil war, slavery ending, always had the people of God very involved. Did y'all get the email for the We the Deplorables where I quoted Finney? Are y'all even on the email list for the, the hub? Yeah, I quoted how he said that politics and religion, you got to be involved because this country was founded on faith in God. That's the foundation. Now, a lot of the people that were involved in that were deists. Some of them were reprobate and corrupt. Few were even Satanists. But they knew that in order to make the Republic work, they it's almost like, remember, was it Caiaphas or Ananias that said this, must, this man must die for the sake of Israel? And the Bible says he was prophesying and didn't know it. It's almost like these people who didn't even believe in God that put the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence in place, even though a lot of them didn't even know God, it's like they were being used by Him anyway. It's fascinating. And they had to do the Bill of Rights because the people didn't trust them on the Constitution. You know, so it's interesting that the church, the people, and these founding fathers all worked together, often yelling and fighting, and then out of that came one of the greatest nations in the world. So it's very interesting, but I think we need him to come back and tear down some stuff. I think where it gets overwhelming is when you see how vast and deep it is. That's what can be interesting. But my my scripture is, can a nation be saved in a day? Yes. yes. 
Absolutely. So, Father, we thank you for your rule. We thank you that you appoint kings, you remove kings, you appoint leaders, you remove leaders. We thank you, Father, that uh, your rule is the most perfect rule anywhere in heaven on earth. And Father, right now I confess that the ecclesia hasn't done a very good job of expanding that rule in this country. I know in other countries there's lots of great things going on, and I know you've got good things going on here. But we miss the point that while you're in heaven, you're going to rule with a rod that comes in the midst of Zion. We are Zion. We are the city of God. And so we're supposed to be expanding your governmental rule in the earth. Discipling nations, teaching them the commandments. Because you said you have authority in heaven and on earth, that all of it has been given to you. Therefore, we have authority over all things, including the enemies. So I ask that you restore that revelation. And I pray that as we go through the book of Kings and we examine the lives, that, Father, we don't ever dishonor uh, one of these kings, but instead we dissect, we take apart the things that we need to be better rulers. The ecclesia, the ruling council of God on earth that we see the things they did wrong as warnings and opportunities to search our hearts with Holy Spirit for any crack in our own foundation, but also things that they did that's right, that we can translate over into our own personal lives, but also the lives of those that you've put in our care. So Father, we want to be joint rulers, co-heirs with Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Help us to not make decisions based out of reasoning, but to be like Zadok and Nathan, and I can't remember the other person, but to be like them and instead always hear the Holy Spirit's voice, especially in times of conflict and in times of tough decision. I pray we are not those that procrastinate, but we will deal with those things quickly so that safety can be maintained in the kingdom of God but also, if we should delay, we ask that you let us know, Holy Spirit. So we thank you for these lessons today. We give you honor for that. And we ask that you receive our tithes and offerings because wealth, like we were talking about, Father, is the glory. Glory is the wealth. It's part of it. You cannot separate it. That's what the enemy was after. The wealth of cities. The glory and the splendor. The glit and the glitter. And so, Father, I ask that this morning, as we give our tithes and offerings to you, that you receive them as kings giving to a king. We're not giving based out of obligation, manipulation, nor pressure. We're not giving to you this morning out of the law. But we are giving to you from a kingly heart that understands that when we transfer our money into the kingdom by our tithes and by our offerings, it is a pledge of loyalty to you and not mammon, and that we serve you and not Lucifer. And so we thank you so much for this opportunity. We thank you for everything this morning. We pray for rain, 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 both spiritual and physical. In Jesus' name, amen.